Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, hello this week, Dressed listeners. Over the last several years, we have gotten quite a few questions from many of you as to exactly how you make a career in the field of fashion history. You know, be it as a museum curator or somebody who practices the art of conservation or a historian, an author, a podcaster, there really isn't any one way um, or any one career that you have to, you know, follow step by step. As our guest today, Edith Chung can attest to. So Edith joined us on Tuesday's episode to discuss her curation of Fashion from Nature in China, Then and Now, which is a new section of the traveling Victorian Albert exhibition, Fashion from Nature. So if you already haven't listened to part one, please do check that out. Yeah, and Edith is really a lover of all things textiles, as is reflected in her multifaceted career and career path, which spans everything from costume design to textile workshops to curation. She's worked with private collections and museum archives, such as the Fashion Archive at Hong Kong Design Institute, the Center for Heritage Arts and Textiles in Hong Kong, and then the China National Silk Museum, which we mentioned on Tuesday is the largest silk museum in the world. And Edith and I, April, we talked for an hour and a half. She is so, (laughs) so interesting and so fascinating. And I just knew our listeners would be as interested as I was in her career trajectory. So I decided to make it its own mini-sode. So let's pop into that part of our conversation. I'd love, and I know our listeners will join me in saying they would love to hear a little bit more about yourself and how you came to be a dress and textile consultant and curator What initially drew your attention to this subject and how did you turn this interest into a career? Cassidy, you're in trouble because (laughs) I'm born in the 1960s, so it's a bit of history. (laughs) And uh, maybe for um, your audience, just to give you a picture, 1960s in Hong Kong is uh, what you see in the mood for love, Uh, Wong Kar-wai's movie that makes the church sandwich he calls uh, famous and that's what my mom used to wear right so um so starting a little bit of uh, my history I had a very weak body as a child before I was a teenager so I often don't get to go out to really play and I became very good with um, just being on my own with a book with bits of yarns from my grandmother, bits of cloth from my mother's dressmaking. So I sort of taught myself how to knit, weave, embroider 
I can make stuffed toys and I know how things are made in general. Like I would say like a maker's mind. And then um, luckily by the time I'm a teenager, I'm healthy <laughs> and energetic. And I would say it was National Geographic that set my mind to be interested in many cultures. So in a way, I can say now my interest in textiles is really, it represents different cultures. And then naturally, um, when I graduated from high school, I went to study fashion design in Hong Kong at the Hong Kong Polytechnic. And then, okay, so education, finish education, borrowed money from my family, go to uh, Europe with a backpack for three months. And somehow I ended in New York. I have friends in New York. And at that time, I was so tired and, you know, so, so, so many, <laughs> so, so, so many museums, um, you know, so dead tired, didn't research about New York, but then I knew about this garment district. So I just, my friends say, oh, just try and see if there's any work. And I got work. And this is in the mid eighties when uh, the garment industry is really doing quite well. And most of the things are already manufactured in the Far East. So I got the job, uh, although it was for a mass importer, the clothing itself doesn't, uh, don't want to talk about it, but New York was fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the days when, you know, I've I've met Madonna, Michael Jackson and Keith Haring. So very lively. So I think that that was my few years in, in New York. And I traveled frequently back to uh, Far East for all the manufacturing. So whatever time I have in New York, I go to museums. So I I think I've probably covered all the museums in Manhattan and Brooklyn. You know, I'm just a fan of museums and I'm interested in how they get things done. Uh, And I even remember you can do volunteer work at the Met. So I probably helped iron some dresses. You know, it's incredible, right? And then at FIT, back then, there is an archive for students. And um, because I was enrolled in the evening course for millinery, I talked my teacher into letting me use the archive, although only full-time students were allowed to do it. And in the end, I did actually donate two pieces to the (laughs) the archive. I think it's still there. April and I are both uh, FIT grads. Oh, great. great, great. (laughs) (laughs) But very quickly, I knew I actually don't like the fashion industry. I like clothing. And then I I left New York and worked very briefly in Europe. And then I was back in Hong Kong. And very luckily in the 80s, 80s and 90s, Hong Kong is really booming, especially the uh, film industry. And then my friends say, oh, would you like to do movies? I said, I don't like go shopping with uh, just the actresses. <laughs> I want to make the clothing. So uh, from my very first movie, I want to do period costumes, right? From ancient China to like 1930s. I, I like the research part uh, and I, yeah, the variety of textiles. Yeah, so that started, but again, very quickly, I got so tired of movies and, you know, sleepless, uh, <laughs> I come from the film industry too. Yep. Yes, yes. Um, so, and then I decided, in fact, as a costume designer, I couldn't find anybody who makes the things to my standard. And I end up making the things. So I thought, okay, 
I'll open up my own studio and make costume and serve the industry. So this is 1990. And for a decade, I, I've been providing for the film industry. So I, I think we calculate that I've done like 250 movies, like just wow. involved. Of course, some of them I made a lot of costumes, but some of them I only made a few. Right. But, you know, and, and then in Hong Kong, we don't have big studio like yours where you can rely on a, a, a reserve of costumes. Sort of everything is made new every time. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> you were busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was very lucky. And then by the millennium, I thought, okay, need to do something else. And uh, by then, it was also Hong Kong um, handover back to China in 1997. So there's a sudden, um, sudden surge of interest in the culture. So again, the Cheng Sam on the Chi Pao, Chinese clothing, got, um, people got very interested and all brand names seems to want to touch on that. And so surprisingly, I became the um, sort of source of information because I've been doing movies and I'm not a historian, but I know enough to interpret the new form. So I get a lot of uh, consultation works and things like that. And then 2003, that's SARS, that's the virus we had, you know, that, that's why it helped us during this today, because we had the SARS in 2003. And um, so we all learned to wear the face masks. Right. So again, it seems to be it's the time that you really want to do something that you didn't dare to do before, right? So I, I started another studio space and play as sort of like a gallery studio. So I, I played curator myself and tried to um, come up with an exhibition every three months to give myself um, some direction. Because I really enjoy doing research. Is uh, Every movie I, I, I like being in another uh, atmosphere sort of thing. So I, I sort of did strange things, I only according to myself and not according to any professional rules like I put up an exhibition uh, just green so I collected everything green um, whether it's a surgeon's robe or it's a industrial building net sort of thing so and I have done sort of like 10 of those exhibitions just for myself it's just for my and and then people start to get interested and then I was offered this job in Shanghai to take care of a private collector's um, collection of 5,000 items in textiles. Wow. You know, so suddenly I felt that, oh, all my interest in museums and archives and clothing, now it's the time. So I spent some time in Shanghai building this archive. And by then I have so many friends in the museum, so I can check with them how, how things are done, sort of thing. Yeah, and then after that, uh, I became known in China as this uh, person from Hong Kong who has some s strange views about textiles. Yeah, that sort of thing. And bringing uh, your unique perspective, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think it, I sort of created my own uh, path. Mm -hmm. 
It's really interesting because there's actually a lot of parallels between my career and yours because I similarly did costume design, thought I wanted to do fashion design, did costume design and realized all I really loved was the period research, like you said, being transported <laughs> to those other periods. Um, mm. And then that that kind of brings you, I'm assuming, into your work with the China National Silk Museum, which led to this incredible exhibition we're here to talk about today. Well, this again is really amazing. In the uh, 1990s in Hong Kong, we have a textile society of Hong Kong. And they were actually an interest group with the expats. We have a lot of British and, you know, Australians, Americans in Hong Kong. And it's a group of ladies who are interested in Chinese textiles. And I joined the group because there's no Chinese group. So I have to join (laughs) a a group with, made of uh, foreigners. But it's always very interesting because uh, as a Chinese, things that you assume you know, when people ask you, cannot explain. So it's very good to be with a group who uh, in a way don't know the tradition but have very fresh minds. So together we, we, we had a trip, we went to China, we were uh, meeting scholars. Uh, back then books are not so popular. I mean, books are rare. in especially published in China. And these are all scholars that I have my reference books uh, when I was doing movies. So I was really excited. And because I'm the only one, aside from the group leader, I'm the only one to speak Chinese. So naturally I became the translator. And so all these different scholars that we met in Shanghai and Hangzhou, I became friends with. And back then the National Silk Museum was quite new. It was only probably two years old. And director Zhao Feng back then was the deputy director and very progressive. And I remember just going into the museum, the first wall I saw was Silk Road. So it's like, oh, my National Geographic map is here. (laughs) So I thought, oh, this is my museum. This is what I can learn from them. Um, so anyway, through through the years, I became sort of their their secretary, their translator. And so I have to sort of know everything, you know, from from the dates, from the dynasty to conservation, I have to learn. And also back then in China, you don't talk about your hobbies and interests. And textile society in Hong Kong, they couldn't believe that we are just an interest group. Right. And and they thought very highly of us, you know. So I was given a lot of opportunities uh, with information passing from China to the other parts of the world. And in a way, I would think Director Jiafeng would agree that the Textile Society of Hong Kong introduced him to the world. You know, he then later was at the, got fellowship at the Met, and then he went to Europe, and it really opened his eyes. And whatever he learned, he brought it back to the museum. So even at, at, at the Silk Museum, every, every label is uh, bilingual uh, before any museums in, in, in China. They also didn't understand, they don't have people that work on freelance and spend so much time on their interests. So they always thought that maybe I'm just a well-off Chinese who doesn't need to work. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, until uh, I did the work in Shanghai, that project, they are wondering 
what I can do. And they were very surprised because I was not in the industry, in the profession. And why did I manage to attract so many people? Uh, because we, the, the archive that I've done in Shanghai, actually, I need to make use of the archive to build uh, education programs. So I did that. We, uh, we offered five-day workshop where it's like a retreat camp where you stay and we focus on the subject. You know, so it's like day, day and night. And actually, I have to say this was inspired by um, the program at Haystack in Maine that offered these uh, craft uh, two weeks, I think, or, or 12 days sort of retreat. And I had this opportunity to help uh, as an assistant once. And that really inspired me to do that workshop. Okay. But that's another story. And that's with the uh, 5,000 piece collection that you were working with in Shanghai? Yes, yes. And they are mostly recent. Like For example, because I, I teach weaving, it's a, like the most popular one would be a five-day workshop understanding weaving. In China, although they, uh, they have this heritage program, they have these master craftsmen that teach you the most complicated weaves. But nobody wants to explain the most simple reason why the, the weaving loom works, right? So I often say I teach ABC. Uh, but with every little thing, you know, once you know what warp is, what weft is, we can go through things in the archive and say, now tell me which one is warp, which one is weft. And then even with a plain weave, we can see so many textiles uh, from China, you know, even... Director Jelfon would say, I can't imagine you can teach plain weave for one week. I said, but there's so much about plain weave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a hands-on, it's, um, it's viewing textiles, and it's a sharing between all those who come because they might be designers, they might be teachers. So it's a, it's a very uh, open way of learning, you know. And so you're saying that the China National Silk Museum kind of recognized what you were doing there and asked you to translate it into, into work with their collection. Yes, yes. Because uh, I just seem to have, I'm sure you do also, you have your own way of explaining things. And because I like, actually this way was sort of inspired by children. When you're in school and learn about, okay, and uh, you have cotton, wool, silk, you know, all these with very boring references, right? But when children ask you, like in Hong Kong, they say, okay, you talk about all this. What do I, we have in Hong Kong? And that's stunned me. And I said, oh, you have a dog? Do you have a dog or a cat at home? And they say, oh, yes, then you have fiber. Yeah. Right? So I end up having all these children sending me different samples of the, the dogs and cats, you know, which is a wonderful way. So I, I would say I, um, I, I like to start topics that are very, that you assume you know, but you don't know, and then sort of grab your attention and then go deeper. And then as a, a costume designer, I end up always, I say, the stop before Salvation Army, because people have so many things to discard. <laughs> but Salvation Army <laughs> don't want those things. So over the years, I've been given many things, and still today, when people give me things, I directly knew, okay, this one should go to Silk Museum, this one go to another archive in the school in Hong Kong or where, right? So there's this wonderful um, Australian lady who lived in Hong Kong for the longest time. She is uh, in landscape design, and over the years, she collected Asian hats, 
like what I would say farmers' hats, those uh, basketry woven hats, over a hundred of them. So they, she, she want to give it to me, right? <laughs> and, I, and I said, oh, okay, all right. So I have to look for a home. So I asked uh, whether the Silk Museum and there, though they are a Silk Museum, the director is open enough to know like the basketry work, it's like the forefather of, of weaving, so they accepted it. And But there was a clause in say, oh, you must do an, an exhibition on it. And after a few years, there's still no sign of the <laughs> exhibition. So I volunteered. I said, can I do it? You know, because uh, it's almost seemed too weird a, a topic for them to handle. So this is what I did in 2019. But unfortunately, after opening just two weeks, it was close for COVID, oh, no. right? But the whole exhibition is actually online because the Silk Museum, Silk Museum is on Google Arts and Culture. So if you look for China National Silk Museum, the exhibition is Asian Hats. Oh, fantastic. We'll put a link in our show notes. And I just want to say too that the China National Silk Museum is the largest silk museum in the world. It displays 5,000 years of silk history, which is just incredible. And trust listeners will put a link to the website, but they offer classes on weaving, sericulture, preservation. They're preserving these garments in more ways than one. They're preserving historical garments, but also continuing these traditions, making sure these crafts continue into the future. And trust listeners, you can thank us now for sending you down the rabbit hole that is both Google Arts and Culture and the China National Silk Museum. There are so many objects on there, so much to learn about China's extensive and fascinating silk history. And April, isn't Edith fascinating? I mean, her story was just too good not to share. Yeah, for sure. I mean, she met Madonna and Keith Haring in the 1980s, and she's worked on over 215 films. <laughs> wow. I and I joked with her that she needs to come on and just tell us about the 80s in New York, because yeah. I mean, what an incredible period to be there. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider your own path to fashion history next time you get dressed. We love hearing from you all. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. And we also post images on Instagram to accompany each week's episodes. You can follow us there at dress underscore podcast. Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.